In our more data-driven age than ever, we focus a lot on data. One thing that has really helped me coming into this market and in the new role is actually just talking to people, having the conversations. Data will show you things, it will give you a great view, it allows you to scale and gather different perspectives, but sometimes it's in those conversations, it's where you really get those insights and that, aha, that helps you understand what is really going on for that individual. This is Go-To-Market Magic, the show where we talk to go-to-market leaders and visionaries about those aha moments they've experienced and also the pivotal decisions that they've made, all in the name of growth. And we don't just mean revenue growth that goes up and to the right. But that's nice too. We're talking about how they improve their teams, their industries, their careers, and their lives. Because growth isn't quite what it used to be. I'm Heather Cole. And I'm Steve Watt. Let's uncover some of the magic that makes it happen. So, Steve, who are we talking to today? Georgia Watson. You heard from her at the top of the show. She leads enablement for IBM in Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia, and Korea. She has a fascinating view about enablement around the world based on some tremendous experience. We're going to be talking to Georgia about enablement innovation at a global scale. Let's get started. Georgia, thanks so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Oh, Steve, my pleasure. Really, really happy to be here having this chat with you and Heather. I'm going to hit you with four questions real quick, and I'm really interested in what you're going to say. So number one, looking back, what role from your past shaped you in ways you didn't expect? Oh, gosh. So rewind 2009 in a hot and steamy southern Nigeria in a rural location. This was my setting for my first ever consulting gig that I did with IBM. And it was my first time working on client site, living in somewhere totally different. The learnings were exponential. So it was on the job learning to the max. But the key things that I learned and why it really shaped me the most were around understanding cultural differences. There were heaps of communication fails, so I learned a lot there. And it really reinforced the importance of relationships and human connection. So I think that was probably the biggest I can imagine it. All right. Question number two, if the money was all the same, what would be your dream job? And you don't oh, get to say the job you have right now. I love this question. I think I could give you about 10 things. What I would do is I would teach yoga and I would run a yoga studio for women who are just going through the ringer or have been through the ringer in life. I actually certified as a yoga instructor and I specialize in children's yoga, but I've never really put that to much use beyond a couple of workshops. But yoga has been something that I've done since I was a teenager and it helps keep me sane. So I'll probably go down that path, I think, Steve. What manager or mentor from your past had the biggest impact on your trajectory? Oh, this is a great question. I've been really blessed to have many great mentors and managers, but there's one that really stood out. So 2011, I had just finished a long stint in Nigeria and this absolutely no-nonsense marketing VP hired me to lead the geo expansion. And I was kind of equal parts impressed and petrified of this guy. And there was one call I remember coming out of, and it was a planning call. 
And I was so deflated. I was gutted coming out of this call. I presented my marketing plan and what it was going to be. And he was from the Nordics. And let's just say he was very German in his style. So there was really no nonsense. And he had this super detailed numbers focused lens to everything that he would bring. So this was 2011 and we weren't all about the numbers as much then, but he really taught me the necessity of looking at the numbers, making sure that was the focus, and then also adapting what you're presenting for different people. Because when I was working with him, it didn't skyrocket my career, but what I learned with him, I still apply now in my career, 12, 13 years later, how to adapt things for your audience, how to make sure that you're focusing on the numbers or the things that matter to them. So that's one of the reasons I think he was probably one of the best ones. But on a little side note, I really, I feared this guy for a long time. And I remember the first time I met him, I went to Dubai and this guy had toy cars on his desk and it was just so wonderfully human in person. So it was just uh, such a flip after I met him. I love it. What's your business superpower and what's your kryptonite? Oh, I love this question about superpowers. I think it's really great. I would say I'm a possibilitarian. So what's a possibilitarian? I'm sure you're asking. So it's total jargon, but basically it's someone who thinks that anything is possible. And if you think of the word possible, its actual root meaning is capable of making things happen. The idea is not that you just see opportunities, but you also take action and bring those pieces together to make it happen. So I'm a possibilitarian. That's I what love I it. What's the kryptonite though? What gets in your way? What do you avoid? What are you not good at? So I would say the kryptonite is probably the ante of that. That's how we've always done it statement that we all hear. So that's probably one. But the thing I don't love is like the spreadsheet work. We all have to do it, but just yeah, those hours in spreadsheets. <laughs> I seem to remember when I was asked that question, my kryptonite was very similar. Excellent <laughs> start, Georgia. Thank you. Heather, over to you. Absolutely. So I know you talk a lot about and passionately about the constant need to innovate in enablement programs, especially. And so much we hear folks saying, hey, I want best practices. I want the tried and true. Tell me what you're doing. How do you think about innovation and why is it so critical to enablement instead of just doing what works or like you said, the way we've already done it or what's good enough? Yeah, this is something I'm passionate about, Heather, and the way our clients buy is always changing. The way our teams need to sell is always evolving and the skills that they need to do that are continuing to change as well. So the same old approaches that we have taken in learning and sales enablement don't always continue to deliver what our audience needs and drive the business results that we want them to do. So we know that if you think about innovation more generally, it, it's something that is critical to business success. And in enablement, something that is important to our business, it's got to be important to enablement as well. And we know that companies that invest in innovation reap the rewards. So McKinsey actually did research that showed that companies that invest in innovation continue to deliver superior growth performance over the long term. So it's good for organisations, bottom line, but it's also critical for enablement. So as I mentioned, technology is changing, the way we work is changing, and we're even more distracted than ever before as well. 
And when we think about our sales teams, there's also added pressure to perform, right? The market is getting tougher and tougher. But when we think about distraction, if I can go on a segue for a little minute here, reviews.org looked at cell phone behavior in Americans. How many times do you think they check their phone every day? Have a guess. I would say close to 100 at least. <laughs> I'll take the over on that. I bet it was over 150 or 200. Your both is a pretty good guess, but it was 262 times a day. So, so this is like a constant distraction, right? And I'm sure this is a bit similar around the world, not just in the US, but we live in this time of constant distraction and memory and distraction and learning, it's all linked. So if we are distracted when we're hearing something, if we're trying to learn something, we don't learn it the way that we're meant to. So we've all sat on those calls when we've also been doing our emails and we've got off the call and go like, oh, hang on, what was this actually about? So when we're distracted, when we hear something new, that information goes to the wrong part of the brain. It ends up in the stratum rather than the hippocampus. So what that hippocampus does that we've now bypassed, that's the part of the brain that helps us to process and make sense of that new information. So I'm raising this because I think it is so important that we are first of all, ensuring that we have total engagement in our learning experiences that we're creating. And this is hard to do these days. So we have to capture attention first. One big part of this is, if you think about the rise of edutainment, right? Content that is not just informative and educating people, but it's also entertaining. As enablement, we need to think about that. The second kind of part is around, if we think about our context, so yes, it's changing, but employees now also have these consumer-grade expectations around what learning is and how they experience it. It needs to be empowering and self-directed and it needs to be customised to them. It needs to deliver what they want. So just doing the same old stuff may not meet the bar anymore. But if your tried and true methods do that already, then that's great. The last thing we want is innovation for the sake of innovation. I haven't seen anybody who has got this one knocked yet because there's so much stuff that we need them to be able to know and apply and be able to execute and the behavior, all of it. I haven't seen anybody that has got the one saying, I know how to deliver it in an educational way that's also entertaining, that's in bite-sized pieces when they need it and how they need it always. I've never heard anybody say they've got this one knocked yet. Yeah, it's really hard and it's a balance, right? And what will work for one audience group may not work for another as well. But what is really interesting I found is I'm seeing a lot of shift back to more analog style education. There's a demand for more in-person training, getting back to some of that old stuff that we used to do. It's like in sales now, like sending a direct mailer, which we used to do in marketing like decades ago, is now actually getting cut through. Yeah. Old is new again. So mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of programs that you've been a part of at IBM and love to hear some really specific examples, like the three innovations, the ones that you're most proud of, because I know our audience always wants to hear examples. Tell me what good mm -hmm. looks like. Yeah. The first one I'll share was a program. So as COVID-19, the pandemic was taking grip all around the world, our teams were under a lot of pressure and stress, not just from the business side, but everything else was going on. And I remember 
we went into overdrive around this over-reporting. I think I saw many organizations do this when we just bury in spreadsheets. And what I realized is what we're doing in enablement is we need to really change it. And we're done the flip to do everything, convert it from what we had planned to fit the new pandemic kind of virtual context. But very soon afterwards, I realized, hang on, this is not working. And so I ran a design thinking session in, with my team and we looked at different approaches to how we could solve this one problem that we had. We had new products coming out, new sales plays that we had to launch. And we had a team who was quite disengaged and really struggling, as well as spending massive hours online doing Zoom calls and the like. So what came out of it was a program that we called Thunder in the Cloud. And it was actually a three-month program focused on increasing knowledge about our latest offerings for cloud and cognitive software. But we did it in this kind of edutainment, fun, engaging way. So it was actually like a quiz show. So I worked with the IBM global team and we created this platform. And so what would happen each round was a series of 10 quiz questions. And before the quiz, I'll say, hey, send out communication. This is the topic. This is what it's going to be about. And sellers are so naturally competitive. It's always great. So we had two teams from different areas of the business. And these were teams who we wanted to work together more and understand each their different areas of the portfolio differently. So we had these two teams competing every week. I would send out the materials beforehand. And each time we did it, a representative from that team would come on and questions would be fired at them. And they could go with their own answer, multiple choice, or the team all gave their input. So they could then see, oh, 70% of the team are going with response A. I was thinking B. So it then becomes like that. Do I go with my own answer or go with my team? And because everyone had input on this, everyone read the learning. So I have never before and never yet since reached this level of people clicking on the links and reading and consuming the learning, all in this aim so that they could win the quiz. And as it kind of went along, you know, we had different hosts, different business leaders hosting it, and we tried to keep it quite light and fun. And what we started to do was do things like switch the questions. So team A had to then answer the questions for team B. So then they started to read the content for the other team when they were learning about the other kind of areas. So it was just really like a fun, light way to approach it rather than what could have been a 10-hour learning roadmap, one of those long, long, boring things. And it got great results. From an NPS perspective, it got over 94 as an NPS, which is quite wow. high for sales enablement. And the team's knowledge was boosted. They were engaged. They created new pipeline. So that one was a win and just a testament to applying design thinking methodology and trying something totally new. Like it could have totally failed as well. And things often do. Was the glory of victory all it took to get people to really lean into that? Or were, were there tangible prizes for winning? No, it was really the glory of victory. The prize that we had, they were announced as the winner. And basically the prize was having your head like photoshopped onto a superhero body. And that kind of sent to you like that was it. <laughs> That's how the times were back then. Like it was quite, everyone was just looking for some kind of light relief. I'm not surprised. I anticipated that might have been the answer because it's funny how often people think, oh, we need a spiff. We need pride. We need to give out iPads. We need to give out money. It's like you probably don't. If you structure this well and there is enough visibility within the firm, just the 
intrinsic desire to win is probably a lot more valuable than a free iPad, especially when you're talking about well-paid professionals. And there's two things I've always found. It's the competitive nature desire to win, but the fear of like humiliation in front of your boss's boss, who might be the one throwing out the questions, <laughs> is yeah. also a very powerful driver. <laughs> yeah, very. And you know, even it's not always about the boss's boss either. Nobody even wants to look bad in front of their colleagues or their teammates. When if you feel like you're representing the team, it kind of works on many different levels. But yeah, the iPad and big cash prize is not always needed for sure. So do you have any other examples we could use? Yeah, I've got heaps, but there's one more that I would like to share. And this was one that I did. So around a year ago, I moved back into the APAC market and we identified a need that needed to be addressed around a particular style of selling and in just some of our markets, not all. And so the Insight Selling Program was launched it started as a pilot. And if ever you're trying anything new, always started as a pilot to test it. And I'm sharing this program because I was new in the role, new with the stakeholders, but they were on board and they supported this program. They knew that we were piloting something new. And you know what? It failed. It failed miserably. So the content was great. The audience was some of our ASEAN countries. And I had an amazing facilitator delivering the session, but she had such a challenge getting people to engage. And the way the workshop was designed was that it was virtual, but it really required on people sharing and talking about their opportunities that they were working on and their challenges. And because we just couldn't get that interaction happening, so much of the value was lost. And so then the other reason that you do a pilot is then to get really great feedback to help you improve or figure out what not to do next time around. And even then in getting the feedback. So we did a survey and I ran calls afterwards, but even extracting that feedback to then figure out what landed, what didn't, even that didn't work well. And it was a bit of a failure on my part because I didn't consider these cultural kind of nuances. So Australians are notoriously direct. We will come out and say, no, that was terrible. I didn't like A, B, C, D. It should have been one, two, three. But not all cultures are like that. So I didn't factor that in. So I just wanted to flag that one because things don't always go to plan and they don't always work, particularly when you're trying something new. But it shouldn't stop you because it may go the way of thunder in the cloud, the quiz program, right? You may have a really great formula that you can reuse and apply in different ways. Georgia, when you speak about the difficulty of getting people in certain regions and certain cultures to be more active participants in training and enablement, what do you do with that fact? What do you do with that information? Do you try to find ways to redesign the curriculum such that they do participate more openly? Or do you accept that it's going to have to be more passive content delivery in this environment? I think this is a really great question, Steve, and it's an important point. And I think it's something that every individual needs to make a critical assessment of at the time. So the program that I was talking about, what we did was we redesigned it and we delivered that content in a different way to the same audience and it landed. But there may even be times where you just say, hey, okay, that didn't work. Moving on. I've got another way that doesn't work on the list. I won't go back there again. So it depends on the scenario, I think, and how important it is 
to get that information to people. So normally, if you're running an enablement program around it, it's something that needs to be communicated. So normally, I would be inclined to say, how could you do it differently? And now you've got one way that it doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of brings us to our next topic when we're thinking about your experience and background is fantastic. You've been in EMEA and now you're in the APAC region and you have seen these types of cultural differences. Can you tell us a little bit about the primary differences as an enabler across these geographic footprints? Is there a significant difference or is the core basic frameworks, are they all the same? And you mentioned just getting feedback in some cases, you have to do it differently. And I'd love to hear your perspective on kind of those key differences. Yeah. So I have worked in very different sort of geographies. And even if we take EMEA, so Europe, Middle East and Africa, within that there's huge diversity. And it's the same in APAC, right? Even for someone, if you're covering the US, it might be slightly different by state to state, by city. So we really need to think about consciously, what do that audience really need? What cultural factors do I need to consider to make it work? Because they are so different. As I said, that last program, the Insight Selling Program, it didn't work in APAC when I came and it would have worked in EMEA. That's where I was. That's what I was basing it on, thinking of that audience in that context. So I think the key thing is really to understand what's happening on the ground. So there's the maturity of your sellers, there's maturity of the market that you need to factor in. You then really need to think about the actual context, what's going on for your sellers right now. And then what are those kind of cultural differences? Because all of those say play a huge role in whether something is going to land and add value for your audience and in turn the business or not. Yes. And have you seen the one thing we've been hearing a lot too is that in the United States, there's been a big generational shift that we said was coming for years and our sellers are so much younger than they were even four or five years ago. And that has to do with COVID and retirement and all that good stuff. And the way they want to be enabled, as you mentioned before, those attention spans are so different. Is that impacting the regions that you're in now? Is it the same or is it a little bit different? Yeah, so this is such a great point, Heather, and it's an interesting topic in itself too, the way different generations are approaching selling and some things are far more natural. So Steve, your social selling, that kind of realm is is differently grasped, let's just say, than some of potentially the people who have been around relying on relationship selling and face-to-face interactions for a long time. So that's kind of big. What I found in, it's hard to generalise about EMEA and APAC in that context. Because if we think about Africa, for example, this is where we have a much younger workforce who are hungry for learning, who will take on any learning that they think will help them in their job versus maybe Europe, which is the opposite of that. And it's a bit similar in Australia as well. And when we think about some of the Asian markets versus, say, Australia, for example, So it's quite different, but I think that it's a really important factor that people need to consider. And there's this thing that I call accordion content. And this is an approach that we can take that can help address the kind of different types of learning and resources that people need. And I say accordion, you can squish it in and make it short and you can pull it out and make it wide. So you need to have these different pieces 
based on what it is that people want. So yeah, you have your micro content videos that people can just dive in and out of in a couple of minutes. For those deep technical guys, you then probably need something that has a lot more depth and information. And you need this balance of different lengths of content. And I would always say, you know, wherever it is geographically, and whatever the audience is, make sure you have that light, more accessible content as your first layer. And then you allow people to dig down and find out more and find out more based on what they're looking at. And I'm not just talking about learning as well. I'm also considering resources in that statement too. Georgia, do you mean like really like choose your own adventure? That answer could have been interpreted at least in two ways. One way would be, okay, I know what they want in Africa. I know what they want in Europe. I know what they want in Australia and I'm going to give it to them and they'll all be a little bit different. Or is it, no, we're going to go right down to the individual. We're going to create these accordions, as you said, such that each individual can stretch it for their own. Are, are, we, are we talking at an individual level or more of a regional? I would love to do this at an individual level. I think we all want that ultra personalized learning that hits the spot for what we need. This can be hard to do at scale though, right? What I have done in the past is more, it does have some generalizations, but wherever we can put in options for people to select what they want and choose what is most relevant for them and allow them to personalize, it makes such a difference. But this is the dream, right, Steve? that people can just pick exactly what works for them. And we have that queued up for them based on everything that we know about them in a learning plan or a landing page ready to go for them. And that borderline's on creepy. If you know them a little too well, they start to get, yeah. <laughs> How did you know I needed that? <laughs> we missed our data, we lost the insights. <laughs> yeah. You've mentioned design thinking, and that's a huge piece of the way IBM thinks about prioritizing the user above all else <laughs> from that perspective. And I think that's a really good point in that not all enablement organizations are focused that way. They're saying, I know what you need and I'm gonna give you what I think you need. When you are developing your programs, you keep referencing design thinking and I love it. Do you pivot completely to thinking about that either a user persona because you're not quite at the individual user yet? And is that kind of your design DNA? Is that where you always start? Yeah. For those who are not so familiar with design thinking, it's a framework and an approach um, to solving problems, which really has the user at central. And so these personas, Heather, as you mentioned, are so important. For me, when I work, I am doing more generalized personas the idea of let's say you have a data and AI seller working with clients direct in a certain segment of the business. That persona in reality is going to reflect like hundreds of different people with so many different nuances and variations. But depending on your scale and how big your team is, I think you do need to make those generalizations. And the beauty of personas is that this really is a bit of a generalization of a group of different people. And so if you do your research and gather your insights well enough, you can make sure that persona, even though it's covering a group of people, hits the key spots for all the different people within that group. So I think personas are amazing and they really just help you keep your learner as central, which is something that we have to do. And it's so important when we think about innovation too, right? There's many different definitions of innovations, but one is about having a new idea or approach to solve a problem for a specific group of people. It has to be specific and focus on a particular group. 
This has been a great conversation. And I know we've hit a lot of topics in here and I appreciate the flavor that you've brought from the perspective of the geographic footprints that you've operated in, which is always fascinating to me because it's one thing to be able to build really effective enablement for maybe one or two kind of personas and cultures. It's a whole nother ball of wax when you're looking at all of these variables and getting it right, which is fantastic. So if you were to think about the experiences that you've had, and there are people that are going to be listening to this that are saying, hey, I want to understand how to do this better in APAC or from a global perspective. What are the couple of things that you could give us that would be the pieces of advice that you wish you'd known coming into this role or lessons learned or things that people really need to focus on? Yeah. In our more data-driven age than ever, we focus a lot on data. One thing that has really helped me coming into this market and in the new role is actually just talking to people, having the conversations. You know, data will show you things. It will give you a great view. It allows you to scale and gather different perspectives. But sometimes it's in those conversations. It's where you really get those insights and that, uh aha, that helps you understand what is really going on for that individual. And again, depending on your market, some people may be reluctant to respond to surveys in certain ways, whereas maybe in a conversation, they might be a bit more open. So the key thing I would say is, yes, use your data, but also really understand what's going on the ground through conversations. So that's really important. And you have to make the time to understand the local cultures and the context. We don't have time to do anything these days, right? We only have the time to do the things that we see as valuable. So I'm telling you, make time for this one to understand the culture and the context. And we also need to make time for that innovation as well. Otherwise, we just miss the opportunity and we just get busy doing the same things that we've always done. And I think the other thing that I'll suggest to people, whatever your geographic context, for those in enablement, we really need to get comfortable with doing things differently and trying new approaches because as enablement, we have to continue to add more value, right? We can't be a cost center. We need to be helping create revenue and being able to demonstrate the value that we can bring, whatever the geographic context. Absolutely. Well, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today and thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was a great conversation, wasn't it, Heather? What were your big takeaways? So I love talking to Georgia, and I think she just has this amazing perspective about what it takes to enable with a global footprint. And that piece of it to me is just fascinating because of the scalability and what you need to be able to focus on. So I think the first thing that I really took away from it was when she talked about EMEA and APAC, she reminded me immediately that it's not APAC, it's the A in APAC and looking at those personas individually and thinking about what is needed from a design thinking perspective. Who is your user? Who is your user persona? And how do you get them to engage? Yeah, I agree. And something that really struck with me. I mean, it was right at the beginning of the conversation when she talked about people's changing expectations and the need for more of like a consumerization 
of content and learning and delivery and the need to make it more engaging and entertaining and interactive, which makes so much sense. But then when you couple that with the cultural differences in different regions of the world, you know, she talked about delivering something as essentially a game show, but then you've got in some regions, people are going to be like, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that. That's horribly intimidating and embarrassing. And no, I'm not going to do that. So striking this balance around making things much more interesting than just like a content dump while still being sensitive to the needs and expectations and, and I guess the boundaries of people in yeah. different areas. That's tough. So I love her term of edutainment was, of course, one that's been thrown around out there and they use it now. And in, in my kids' schools, they do a lot of that too. And it does work. But the other piece of this is how do people want to learn and learn in the moment? And when she started talking about that, sometimes you just need to know something. You need an answer to a question right now. So how do I get that piece and that accordion that opens further and further? So thinking about it from the perspective of just answer my question now. Don't make me take a game show. I just need the information in the moment. Oh, no, I really need to see what good looks like. I need to know how some people have articulated this before. And then being able to say, okay, now maybe I need to just practice this a little bit so I can get it out of my mouth. And then sometimes it's about... I don't even know what these acronyms are, or I have no idea what they're talking about here. And I need to really dig down into the depth. And it's also about learning styles too, because some people go the opposite way and say, I need to know all the details and I want to do it on my own and I want to build it back up. And then when I need the information, I want to get to it quickly. So yeah, considering all of those learning styles, it's just, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's like really customization at scale becomes the the holy grail because of everything you said there, right? It's not only the differences between regions and cultures. It's not only the differences between individuals. It's the difference between moments. I need this specific thing now, or I need a deep dive into this area and not the rest, or you know, I'm in a little bit more of a playful mood right now. I'm ready to engage with this much more engrossing and entertaining experience. All of these things are happening all at the same time across the people around the world. That is a very high bar. That is really hard to deliver on, but it's a tremendous goal. And you can just imagine the impact of even making meaningful progress toward that goal. Yeah. And I think final kind of closing thought on that one is, you know, she said, we haven't gotten to the individual yet because of the need for scalability, but it's about thinking about both of those things of how can I have it be meaningful to the individual and still resonate on this global scale. And that's an amazing challenge for IBM. And it was really fascinating to hear how she's approaching it. If you enjoyed this episode, follow the show on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. And check out go-to-market-magic.com for show notes and resources.